If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Genesis chapter 18. If you are borrowing a Bible in front of you, it's on page 12. And as you do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Remind us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I pray today that you would teach us and correct us and rebuke us and train us in righteousness as we hear your word so that we may be equipped to live the way that you have called us to live. So speak to your people. Ready our hearts, ready our minds to hear your voice today. In Jesus' name, amen. As a Christian, how often are you troubled by the wickedness in this world? It seems like if you keep up with the news, all you're going to get is discouragement because there is no place on the planet that is not dealing with the consequences of some sort of evil. And if you're like me, you probably wonder, what is this world coming to? And yet we can become desensitized to sin. Think about it. This world has identified a place, a city, as Sin City. Christians didn't come up with this idea or this name. The world has equated Las Vegas with sin. Because when you hear that name, you don't think of anything other than the sin that is carried out in that place. It's also that people plan vacations or they plan to go there to carry out sin against the Lord. Although they don't call it that. But they go there because it's a place where it's normal. It's a place where it's even popular to do these things and hoping that they won't be judged by other people or they won't uh, feel guilty for what they are doing. Now, what if you heard that tomorrow Las Vegas was going to be destroyed for the time had come that the Lord was going to judge them for their sin and for their wickedness? How would, how would you respond to that? Would you have concern? Would you care? The question I want to answer today is how do we as the church view the world when we know that the wicked will one day be sent to eternal conscious torment in hell? And so we come to our chapters today. And I have two chapters to walk through today. And I know that if you've looked at it, you probably have already seen that Sodom and Gomorrah is included in the account that we're looking at today. And I know that there are a lot of things that come to your mind as they do mine. There are things like fire and brimstone. There is homosexuality. There are uh, the things that Lot says that are very foolish. Uh, There's Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt. So we could spend hours on all of these things, but we can't spend hours. And so what I want to do today is I want to show you and draw your attention to Abraham. Since we're doing a series on the life of Abraham and how the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah affects him and therefore us. And while we come to any passage that we want to read, we want to ask the question, what do I need to know before I start reading this? It's called context, right? And in the book of Ephesians, which we were in in our last series, there was about a thousand pages that was written and we needed to know what had happened beforehand. And it's harder to figure that out. But today in Genesis, it's a lot easier. 
So what I want to do is I want to take you back to the beginning of Genesis and just take about three minutes and outline a few things that are going to help us today in what we see in our passage. And two things I want you to notice. I want you to notice how God is presented as the judge of all the earth and that he judges with righteousness and with mercy. And so we start with Adam and Eve who were created in the image of God. And their, their job was to, other than walking with God and knowing God, was to fill the earth with descendants who would rule over the earth like their creator. But they sinned against God. They rebelled against God's commands. And therefore, the righteousness of God comes into play. And he must judge them. And he does. He judges them with spiritual death immediately, pain in life, and eventual physical death. But we also see the mercy of God in that he promises to provide a descendant that one day will overcome sin and be victorious where Adam failed and earn eternal life for his people. The next account comes with Cain and Abel. And when when the Lord declares to Cain, he says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? That means that Cain knows the right thing to do And he's capable and expected to do the right thing. But his inherited spiritual death from his parents, Adam and Eve, are shown when he has this insincere worship and he eventually kills his own brother. So God comes and he judges. He, in his righteousness, judges Cain by sending him into exile and as a fugitive to wander out the rest of his life. And Cain fears for his life and the Lord in his mercy provides a mark on Cain that will protect him from being murdered, although he would still wander alienated from God. The next account is of Noah. He is righteous, his family is righteous, but every single other person on the planet at that time is identified as very wicked and intentionally and continually wicked. And so Noah and his family are the only ones that are righteous, but God in his righteousness comes and judges sinners. And he he makes a flood cover the entire earth because that's how far the sin had extended. But God in his mercy says to Noah, I'm going to rescue you. And the hope of humanity flowed atop the waters. So you see this righteousness and, and mercy of God. And they're so closely connected, and we need to see this for what we see today. But the next account is in chapter 11, where we see the Tower of Babel. So the people have, have repopulated, at least to a certain extent, after the flood. They decide, you know what, in pride, we're going to build a utopia, and we're, we're going to settle in one location. But the Lord had commanded that they spread out across the whole world. And so they're disobeying God. They say, we want to build a place so that we have peace, and we have power, And they all spoke one language, so this was easily possible. And they started to build. But God, in his righteousness, judges the people. And he he removes their strength by taking away their language and dispersing that, and also dispersing their location. But the question is, how does God show mercy in this situation? How do we see the mercy of God extended to these people that were just judged? And we see it in choosing one man, Abraham, to bless all of these now nations and tribes and tongues of the world. 
And you remember that's chapter 11 that this happens in the Tower of Babel. Chapter 12 begins like this, and this is the mercy of God. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so as we've read or kind of reviewed through Genesis already, we can bank on God's righteousness and mercy. It's it's quite obvious there. But what I want to draw your attention to is a third thing that we can see, his faithfulness. You see, God makes promises that he now has to be faithful to. He's got to fulfill these promises, but now his faithfulness has to judge or uh, guide his righteousness and his justice and his mercy. Because if he's going to act these ways, he still needs to fulfill these promises. To Adam and Eve, he says, I will give you a descendant one day that will overcome sin. To Cain, I will protect you from being murdered. To Noah, I will rescue you if you obediently build an ark. And to all of the nations now, I will bless you through one man. And so these promises are now, we see the faithfulness of God, but we also see the righteousness and mercy. And all of these things work together. And in light of all of this, we come to our passage today in chapter 18. Now, it starts in the middle of the day when the sun is at its hottest. And people didn't work. They took a break at that time. It was too hot. And and so Abraham is found at the door of his tent And he's resting. He might be having a nap. But all of a sudden, three men appear. And it's the Lord in the form of three people, three men. And Abraham jumps to his feet and becomes a servant serving the Lord. He makes this feast that they, not together, they would never have eaten this much food. But he was generous and he was hospitable towards the Lord. And so the Lord and Abraham are having a meal together. The Lord is speaking and he says, where is Sarah? He he wants her to hear it. And she's in the tent. And so he says again, the promise of a son will be given to Abraham and to Sarah. And she hears it because before then she hadn't. And so it's a wonderful day, a great day. And so as, as the meal is wrapping up, we pick up the verse in 16 of chapter 18. Read with me. It says, then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And so I just want to stop there and answer some of the questions that might be arising in our minds. We're not yet at the actual account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That happens in chapter 19. But we're already talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. If we go back in Genesis just a little bit and we see how Sodom is presented. We know in chapter 10 that it is within the land of Canaan. We know in chapter 13 that when Abraham and Lot, when they separate, Lot chooses to go and dwell near Sodom. And Moses, as he writes it, 
explicitly says, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners before the Lord. And so this is the idea that we have of this place. And in chapter 14, Abraham actually rescues Sodom because he wants to rescue his nephew Lot. And we meet the king of Sodom who is ungrateful and actually demanding of Abraham. And then throughout the scriptures, we see Sodom and Gomorrah brought up as an example of the judgment of the wicked. And Ezekiel 16 actually helps us understand more about Sodom. It says this, Behold, this was the guilt of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So, Based on what we know about the judge of all the earth, his righteousness and his mercy, what do we expect regarding Sodom? Righteous judgment. And so we come to our passage with this in mind. And the Lord tells Abraham in verse 20, it says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to that outcry that has come to me. And so Abraham knows at that point, and we know as the readers, that Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed because of their wickedness. But let's take a step back and let's look at verse 17. Because the men are leaving and the Lord is wondering. He says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? So Abraham's not hearing this. These are the inner thoughts of the Lord, which provide his reason for what he's about to do. And he's asking the question, should I tell Abraham? And he comes to the conclusion, yes, Abraham needs to know this. It seems like the chapter was wrapping up. Abraham would go home and he would have a great rest and having had a good day, the Lord would move on. But the Lord says, no, he needs to know this. And so the chapter continues. And my question is, why does Abraham need to know this? The Lord gives his reasons in verses 18 and 19. The question begins, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And now the answers are given. Number one, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And number two, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So both of these we remember from chapter 12. When Abraham is called, these are the promises that he gave to him, at least two of them. But in 19 here, verse 19, it's explained a little bit further. He says, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So now we see how God is going to fulfill his promise through Abraham. We know that he's going to be a great and mighty nation, but it says that he must keep the way of the Lord. So he's not just going to be great and mighty. He needs to be known as a nation that is just and righteous. But why does the nation have to be like this? Look at verse 19. So that the Lord will fulfill his promise to Abraham. So they need to be a nation that is righteous and just. So that the Lord can fulfill his promise. And what promise was that? That he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so God intends that his people, including us today, be a people that are committed to righteousness and justice so that the Lord will fulfill his promise of blessing all the nations. 
And so we, as God's chosen instrument to point the world to Christ, we must be committed to public righteousness and justice. You and I are expected to be perfect like our heavenly father is perfect because we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And therefore, like Christ, we must be righteous and just so that the Lord will fulfill his promise through us. And the church is to do this by presenting the gospel both visibly and audibly to the world. Thinking of righteousness, what, what kind of world would we live in if God did not punish sin? More importantly, what kind of God would he be if he didn't punish sin? You see, the words righteousness and justice are important here. In English, we have two words, righteousness and justice. And it's, and it's unique because in Hebrew and in Greek, both of those words have the same root word. And so they're connected that way. And so it's not, it's not foreign when we hear Moses describe the righteousness of God and he uses the word justice. Look at Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. It says, all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right is he. And so that God is perfectly righteous means that he does what is just. He does it all the time, no matter the circumstances. But not only that, as God he actually defines what righteousness actually means. Look at Isaiah 45. It says, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And so if God's righteousness is that he is always doing the right thing, the just thing, there's no favoritism, he will, he will act according to his righteousness, then we as his people must also be committed to righteousness and justice. That when we make our decisions, we need to be righteous and just. And our righteousness must be defined by what God defines it as. And the reason why I added the word public in the outline is because it needs to be visible and audible. We can't just practice righteousness behind the closed doors of the church. We, we, we need to go out. We need to act righteously and just when there are people that are being oppressed in this world, when there are people that are needy in this world, when we need to speak the truth in this world. And how else are we going to be the salt and the light of the world? But it's a dangerous thing to do that. It's hard to do that. And it's discouraging because we will be persecuted. When you speak the truth to the world that, a world that suppresses the truth, you're going to be persecuted. When you speak up and give a voice to the oppressed whom the world has cast aside, you will be persecuted. And so if we are going to seek righteousness and justice, then we are choosing to suffer possibly at the world's hands. So I'm not going to convince you if you're just listening to me. What I want you to do is look to your Savior. Look to your Lord. He, as our example, was undeterred to show righteousness, to speak righteousness and justice to everyone. But what did it bring him? It brought persecution, hostility, even betrayal and death. And yet this was the plan of God before the foundation of the world. The world looks at us and says, you're ridiculous. 
But Jesus looks at us and says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, not one of us, not one of us in this room can be committed to righteousness and justice continually and never give up. There will be discouragement. There will be opposition and we will fail unless we have been forgiven our unrighteousness, made righteous by God and are depending upon his power to fulfill the way that he has called us to live. And so we must go to him to be able to do this. And not only does our seeking righteousness and justice by faith please him, but we are a part of the fulfillment of the promise of God to bless all the nations of the earth as we proclaim and declare and to show the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's through this that Jesus calls us the light of the world and says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, which are your righteousness and your justice. And they will give glory to your father who is in heaven. So the question must be asked, how will the church be a part of the fulfillment of God's promise to bless all the nations of the earth if we are not committed to righteousness and justice? If we do not know the righteousness and justice as defined by the scriptures, if we do not teach our children or new believers who don't have a background of scripture what righteousness and justice really looks like, and if we ourselves as individuals are not standing out in this world, but are more products of this world and are unrighteous and unjust ourselves. Why does the Lord make sure that Abraham knows the imminent destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? So that he sees the righteousness of God and and commands his children to keep the way of the Lord. So as a nation, they will be a part of the promise and they will not be judged themselves. And why does the Lord make it known to us in the scriptures as his church that we know that the wicked will be destroyed one day so that we are committed to righteousness and justice and proclaim the gospel to them? Now, if the gospel is going to go out, it will mention that God is righteous and that God will punish the wicked. And that means that they are going to hell, but... They will not accept the mercy of God if they don't understand the righteousness of God. And so they're so closely connected. And this is how we begin to see the mercy in this story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Read with me 22 to 33 in chapter 18. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? 
And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. Now, this conversation happens because the Lord doesn't keep his plans quiet. He told Abraham on purpose and he wanted this resulting dialogue to happen so that he would learn and that we would learn something about God. And so he initiates it. But notice that this dialogue isn't so much about mathematics as it is about the righteousness of God. Abraham thinks of at least Lot when he's talking about the righteous. His nephew was there that lived in, in, in the city. And so my own paraphrase would be, Lord, if you destroy the city, what about the righteous people that are living there? Because it's not just if you kill the righteous with the wicked and you're just. He doesn't doubt that. He says, you are the, you are the judge of all the earth and will you not do what is just? The answer is, of course he will. But how will it happen? And Abraham's question is, so you got to spare the city or else the righteous will fare as the wicked and that's not just. And that will undo your perfect righteousness. To which God responds, I won't destroy this city for the sake of the righteous if they are there. And so the question of, will God destroy the wicked city if there are 50 righteous people? No, he will not destroy it. What about 45? No. 40? No. 30? 20? 10? No. Do you get the point? It doesn't matter how many people, how many righteous people are in the city. God will not, by his righteousness, allow the righteous to be swept up with the wicked. And what we see here is actually the mercy of God. We don't see that the righteous might get swept up with the wicked. We actually see the gospel in that the wicked could be spared for the sake of the righteous. The Lord knows the sin of the world. He, he doesn't need to go down to the earth and investigate it. He hears the outcries of injustice. He knows the sin that is very grave. He knows it didn't stay in the garden. He knows it goes into the extent of the earth. And as he looks in the earth for the righteous, he, all he's going to find is sinfully depraved humanity. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if God wants to be righteous, he must punish sin. But if he wants to be merciful, he needs to provide a righteousness for us so that we can be saved. And if we are, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so this is how we see the righteousness of God when he doesn't immediately punish the wicked for their sin. And because we have been made righteous by the work of Christ, not our own work, I cannot begin to boast in myself. I cannot begin to think that I am better than anyone else in this world, no matter how wicked they are. Because I am what I am by the grace of God. In his righteousness, I have received mercy. Because his righteousness comes to me and says, Mike, you've sinned and I must punish that. And he does punish it. But he does it in Christ. And he shows mercy to me. And as it says in the scriptures, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So let's look at our savior again. He, as our example, was undeterred to show righteousness, but also to show mercy to anyone because everyone was perishing. And so The fact that the incarnation happened, that Jesus comes to us, his very presence is mercy because without that, there is no atonement for humanity. And so when he comes and he submits to even death on a cross, that's the mercy of God that we see, that he preaches to all people in all different towns, anyone who will listen, he preaches the good news that there is salvation possible. That is his mercy. And we are to do the same. So as God's chosen instrument of pointing the world to Christ, we must be concerned for even the worst of sinners. Sodom is described as the example throughout the scriptures of the the fate of of the wicked. 2 Peter 2.6 says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them the example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So this should move us. The wicked, no matter how wicked they are, is actually a picture of the answer to the question of what would I be like had it not been for the grace of God? Had it not been for his mercy towards me? And so the church cannot just be inward focused. We must look outward. When the Lord tells us what is going to happen to the wicked, we must go. We must act righteously and justly, but we must have mercy and concern for the wicked. So the person that you made friends with at the gym or the people that sit across from you on the SkyTrain or the people that are passing by all the time at the mall or maybe in your own home, your mom, your dad, your siblings, your twin if you have one, they are all being held over the pit of hell by the righteousness of God. But we also see the mercy of God in that he is still holding on to them. But there will come a day when time is up. And so knowing this, church, we must understand The righteousness and justice of God is going to take place, but there's mercy. It is not our job to judge. It is our job to show mercy. And we participate in blessing all the nations of the world by sharing the gospel, by proclaiming the death of Christ as the only way of salvation. We cannot delay because Sodom only had hours left. We cannot begin to look around and say, well, this person is more savable than that person. 
We must not underestimate the grace and love of our God. And we must act towards them as Christ would. To speak the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And so do you see the position that God has placed us, his church, in for the sake of fulfilling the promise to bless all the nations of the earth. So we must be committed to righteousness and justice. We must be concerned for the worst of sinners. And this is how we participate in the gospel. But maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I know I know that I need to share the gospel as a believer. I know I need to do that. And I know that people are going to hell if they don't trust in Jesus. But I don't feel the urgency. I don't, I don't feel the motivation to go and do this. And I know this feeling. I, I know this. I've had those days, those weeks, those months. But I think there's a lot of reasons why you might feel this way. But let me just expose one of those reasons one that at some point in my life I had to come to grips with. The gospel must not only be thought of as something I am saved to, but something I am saved from. Because the gospel, when it is articulated properly, talks both about heaven and hell. So if we begin to think that our salvation is more of I'm saved and I will go to heaven and be with Jesus, and so in the meantime, until he returns, I'm just not going to mess that up. Then we become stagnant. We stay inward focused and look to ourselves. But if we don't remember or we don't even realize what we have been saved from, we won't understand when we look at other people who are going to hell, we won't feel the urgency and the cliff that they are falling off of and we won't think to rescue them. The Bible describes hell in these terms. Outer darkness weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal fire, eternal judgment, unquenchable fire, torment, anguish. And you and I will start telling people the gospel, the mercy of God, when we understand where they are going, that the wrath of God awaits them and is imminently about to destroy them in his righteousness. We cannot slow down. We must know where they are going and we will sense the urgency. And you realize again for yourself where and what God has saved you from. And so we come to chapter 19 and I know we're out of time. The, the, uh, you can read it afterwards if you'd like, but let me just give you a brief overview. The angels come to the city. They are judging whether it needs to be destroyed or not. They're looking for righteous people. They find one and it's Lot. And the reason why we know Lot is righteous, even though he does some foolish things, is because he's identified just like Abraham was in chapter 18. When he meets these men that show up, he is hospitable, he is generous, he creates a feast, and he provides roof and protection for them. And then the rest of the men of Sodom, every single one, Moses clearly tells us, every one of them, young and old, to the last man, basically to the borders of Sodom, everywhere, every man except for Lot is unrighteous, is wicked, is depraved. And the way it's carried out 
it it begins to change your mind. If If in chapter 18, you hear of the destruction and you think, can you be more merciful, God? You start reading chapter 19 and you think, why haven't you judged them yet, God? But that's another sermon. Notice how this ends. Uh, We've started with Sodom and Gomorrah, talking about that between the Lord and Abraham. Then Abraham goes away, the Lord goes away, the, the destruction happens. But look at the end of chapter 19. Abraham returns to the story. In verse 27, it says, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so he realizes, we don't have the inner thought, but we, he realizes that God was righteous, however it played out. God was merciful, however it played out, and he was faithful. And whether he learns it that day or in the future, I think the lesson is in 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And so there it is, the faithfulness of God. The righteousness of God means that he will judge the wicked. The mercy of God is that he rescues Lot. And notice how it happens. He doesn't say he remembers Lot and then rescues Lot. He remembers Abraham and rescues Lot. And so he remembers the promises, the covenant that he has made with Abraham. And he saves Lot because of that covenant. And in the same way, we ourselves as believers, we know that we will not be swept up with the wicked, even though our sins would have deserved it. But we have been shown mercy. And the reason why we can have confidence is the faithfulness of God. It is his faithfulness that holds our salvation together. And as God's chosen instrument to point the world to Christ, we must be confident in God's faithfulness. And so... When we look at our our position that God has placed us in as the church, we need to know that we are a part of blessing the whole world and the salvation of many people, that God wants to use us so we must be committed to righteousness and concerned for the wicked and confident in his faithfulness. Let us not be reluctant to participate in this plan of God. Let us believe the scriptures when it says, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And understand why Jesus hasn't returned yet. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." And so if it is that as we go out and live out righteously and justly the plan of God, he may will that we are discomfort. We are in discomfort. He may will that we are in danger. He may will that we even die for this. But we know in the end of the day, we will not be swept up with the wicked. And that's where our fuel comes from. We know that God is faithful to the covenant of Abraham. We know that he is faithful to the covenant that he has made with us in the death of Christ. That we will not be sent to everlasting torment, but that we will be swept up into everlasting and ultimate joy in the Lord. And so if you are here today, and this is new for you, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not one of us here is anything but because of the grace of God we are saved. 
And so if there are any here today that will respond and accept the mercy of God, understanding the righteousness of God, I invite you to pray with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I see your righteousness in the scriptures. And I know that I have sinned against you in my life. And I need your mercy in Christ to save me. I confess my sin. I confess my my attempt to live without you. And I repent. And I call upon the name of the Lord to save me. And I believe that Christ has died in my place, has taken my punishment, and has transferred to me his righteousness. And I thank you for your grace in my life. And I commit to living a life of righteousness and justice by your power, by your spirit within me. And I pray for all of us, Father. I pray for us as your church, that we would be a people that are committed to righteousness and justice, but not to do it in our own strength or we will fail. That we are nothing without you, that we are unrighteous without you. And so we praise you for the salvation that we can find in Christ and we, we let that be the fuel to reach others for the gospel or for the salvation of many. Help us, give us that motivation, change our hearts to have a heart like yours. Give us eyes like yours that we would save many and that you would fulfill your promise to bless all the nations through your covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.